Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. I also have a blog that I haven't written in quite a while, but there's some good stuff for the period early 2019 to March of 2021, and then I switched over to the podcast format. And if you want to reach out to me, just shoot me an email. And my email address is rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is August 7th, 2022. And boy, last week was an interesting week and all kinds of news broke at or about the same time. And my phone and my email were just lighting up with messages and questions. And did you see this? And what about that? And what does it all mean? And I wanted to wait until the end of Friday to do this episode because I was looking for Friday afternoon, early evening news dumps to see if there was anything that followed up on some of the these issues that just popped up last week. And there wasn't. So what I'm going to do is just give you my take on what happened. And I want to begin with an observation that I have made throughout my writing and also my podcasting. And that is that when you look at what's happening in college sports, you can't anchor on one single event. And these events, they come in clusters and waves, and you have to view them all as interconnected. And the events of last week are clearly interconnected. What they mean going forward is not clear at all because so much of this is being done in the back corridors of Congress and the smoke-filled Zoom rooms of the SEC and maybe the other Power Five conferences. It's hard to tell, but everything that came out last week had the SEC's fingerprints on it. So there's all kinds of stuff going on behind the scenes, and that dovetails with another observation that I've made. And that is almost everything that we know about college sports comes from people who have a direct financial investment in it. And that was certainly the case last week. So let me just start. I have a stack here, and I put these documents in chronological order. And I want to just walk through the events of last week and then bring them together for you. Because again, the average consumer out there takes all this in. A lot of it came from Sports Illustrated. Then there was immediate circular reamplification through other broadcast media outlets. And this initial story, how you set the story, the first person to the story has an enormous advantage because in the media now, you don't have independent thinking beyond that first narrative that's set. You have simply pulling from that document and then recirculation and recirculation, and then it becomes an unchallengeable truth. And that really is a function of all media. This isn't just the sports media, but it's particularly the case in sports media and the entertainment industry, the broader entertainment industry, because those two market actors are just loaded with incestuous relationships. And that's true with the events that transpired last week. And if you're a casual consumer, and you were just taking in the events of the week as reported by the sports media, you are likely to anchor on one thing, and that is a breaking story on August 3rd that Alabama Senator 
Tommy Tuberville, who used to be the head football coach at Auburn, and West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin are working on a bill that would bring some sanity into the name, image, and likeness market. They also talked about the transfer portal as well. But there were a lot of other things that happened last week that provide context for that story. And I think ultimately may be more important going forward, at least as it relates to the voluntary regulation of college sports now through the Power Five. The NCAA is irrelevant now, and it has been since July 1st of 2021. And in January of 2022, when the Power Five completed their autonomy 2.0 takeover of the voluntary regulation of college sports through this Constitution Committee and now this Transformation Committee, the regulation of college sports sits with the Power Five. And that goes to the heart of the dysfunction in the regulatory model. I'm going to talk about that as well. So let me start with an announcement that came out on the NCAA website on August 2nd, 2022, and the NCAA timestamps their releases. Some media outlets do that, some don't. I find it very helpful because when you look at the timestamp chronology, that also tells a story. So on August 2nd, we had a press release from the NCAA. It's dated 6.43 p.m., and it says, Baylor President Linda Livingstone, elected chair of NCAA Board of Governors, and that is consequential. I've spent a lot of time talking about Linda Livingstone. I actually did a series on her and some of the issues that swirled around this hearing that occurred in the House on September 30th of 2021, not that long ago, it was less than a year ago. And Linda Livingstone was the star witness, and she sat there in her capacity as the president of Baylor University. And in one of those episodes, and I'll, I'll identify those episodes in the show notes so you can go back and listen to them if you would like. But I pointed out that Linda Livingstone is not just some university president. She is one of the most powerful people in all of college sports, and she is a walking conflict of interest. Livingstone was before the constitutional makeover, she was on the NCAA Board of Governors, the highest governing body in the NCAA system, and it is an association-wide body, and she has a fiduciary obligation in that capacity to the full association. She, at the same time, was sitting on the Division I Board of Directors, which required her fiduciary duties to land with the divisional interests. She was also on the Constitution Committee and the Transformation Committee, and she was trotted out by the NCAA as a star witness at that September 30th hearing. She is not just some university president. And now, post-constitutional makeover, Linda Livingstone is still wearing all of those hats. She's now the chair of the Board of Governors the association-wide board. She is a key member of the Division I Board of Directors. She served on these transition committees. She's on the Transformation Committee. She is at ground zero and has been for almost two years now, a key decision maker. She's sitting in all of these smoke-filled Zoom meetings and the backroom meetings and the briefings from the NCAA and Power Five outside attorneys and their lobbyists and their public relations spin doctors, devising the strategy that's going to determine the future of college sports. 
and she has presented herself to the public as just little old Linda Livingstone, president of Baylor University. That's how she presented herself in that September 30th hearing. In that same press release, NCAA announced the selection of the athlete who was going to sit on the Board of Governors as a voting member, the first time that an athlete has ever been on that board. She recently graduated. She was a volleyball player at California, Pennsylvania. And that's a Division II school, I want to make clear. That's important. A Division II school, which when it comes to the future of college sports, is completely irrelevant to any of the discussions that are going to be going on at the Board of Governors level. And she's a non-revenue athlete in that Division II structure. So she is about as far removed from the reality of the athletes whose labors underwrite this entire business model that a student representative can be. And this was a selection. This wasn't an election. And in other episodes, I'm going to talk about the student representation issue and this Student Athlete Advisory Committee, SAC, which is an NCAA-sanctioned student representation group. But that's the sole vehicle through which the student voice gets a seat at the table in the NCAA governance structure. So we have those announcements. But honestly, the new Board of Governors really doesn't have that much authority because we had this evolution down from the NCAA national structure, the membership structure, the old governing boards, the NCAA national office. The divisions are in charge now without really any meaningful interference from the NCAA. So Division One can do whatever it wants to do. And you have crossover there, important crossover. You have Linda Livingstone. You also have University of Georgia President Jerry Moorhead, who is on all these committees as well, wearing the same number of hats as Ms. Livingstone. And they are also, both of those university presidents are important at the conference level because they have held high leadership positions, both in the SEC for President Moorhead and the Big 12 for President Livingstone. So you have the same kind of crossover, the very kind of crossover that created obvious conflicts of interest and led the Commission on College Basketball to recommend five truly independent Board of Governors members. But there were a couple of other announcements in this press release that I think may be more consequential. This Board of Governors created two committees. The very first administrative actions by the new NCAA Board of Governors post-constitutional makeover are the creation of a search committee for the new NCAA president. And both Linda Livingstone and Jerry Moorhead are on that presidential search committee. And remember, Linda Livingstone was on the executive committee for the Big 12 that was tasked to find a new conference commissioner for the Big 12. So the Big 12 and Linda Livingstone hired this turnkey ZRG company that is a search firm in the entertainment industry, not in higher education, broader higher education. And based on the recommendation of turnkey ZRG and this executive search committee for the Big 12, which Livingstone was a part of, the Big 12 hired Brett your mark. And I did an episode on that as well. And he has zero connection to higher education. He comes from the belly of the entertainment industry. So the Big 12 has turned over its governance to the entertainment industry. And it looks like 
the NCAA may be headed in that direction. And then, and this may be the most important thing that comes out of this press release, is that the new Board of Governors, among their first two items of business, appointed a subcommittee on congressional engagement and action to, quote, provide guidance to the board on what actions the association should take to seek congressional partnership in addressing legislative issues. The release goes on to say, specifically, the subcommittee will identify the association's specific congressional legislative needs and prioritize student athletes participating in all divisions and its 1,100 member schools and develop and implement a strategic plan to effectively communicate and engage Congress about the association's legislative priorities in key areas of ongoing work. That's just classic admin speak, and it, some of it's just incomprehensible. But I think what's important here to understand is we're going to look at some of the other events that transpired the following day. This is the NCAA's interest here. These people are supposed to be promoting the association-wide interest. So let's look at who's on this committee. We have eight members, and they include none other than Greg Sankey, commissioner of the Southeastern conference. That's how he is identified as a member of the Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and Action. And in that role, he is supposed to be placing association-wide interests first. That's his first order of business and his duty. And I guess I should also note that of these eight members on this committee, on this Congressional Action Committee, four of them are also on the Transformation Committee. So there's substantial overlap there, which makes it all the more ironic that when you look at the minutes of the Transformation Committee, you see that there's very little discussion about Congress and the regulatory pathways and the behind-the-scenes arm-twisting that's been going on for years now through the NCAA and the Power Five. So the other thing about this announcement that I just find really interesting is that the way that they present this, it's as if the NCAA has never engaged Congress. It's as if this is just a new initiative and we need to really focus on this now. The time is now. That's that, that classic NCAA tagline. Oh, the time is now. No, the time started in 2014 for the NCAA when they hired Brownstein Hyatt, one of the highest powered lobbying firms in DC. They've been on the payroll since then, and they still are as of the second quarter of 2022 and the Senate lobbying disclosures that were filed just three weeks ago. So this suggestion that this is just some new thing, and now we need this committee of the Board of Governors to think this through to see what we really want from Congress is a ruse. It is a ruse. They know exactly what they want. And when you look at those lobbying disclosure reports, they want the same things they've wanted since 2019. They want preemption. They want antitrust immunity. They want athletes can't be employees. They want to end the athletes' rights movement. And nobody's talking about that honestly. And Greg Sankey, again, in his capacity as the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, he knows damn well what the lobbying activities have been, not just for the NCAA, but for the Southeastern Conference. And then this press release closes it out by saying, the subcommittee, and that's the subcommittee on congressional action, will begin its work immediately and deliver a preliminary report to the board at its next meeting on October 25th. And it says, visit the NCAA website for more updates. Don't count on any 
updates. And that's a substantial gap that we're bumping up on the midterms there. What, we're a week or so or two. I don't know what the election day is this year. But we're bumping up right on that important milestone that many of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been pointing to, to really gauge what they're going to do in Congress. And they're hoping for a Republican-controlled Senate where they can have their way just as they did in 2020. But this time around, Mark Emmert will be out of the way. They've gotten rid of the Emmert factor. And I think Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn had something to do with that. And I've talked about that in prior episodes. She didn't like Emmert. And there were other senators and people on Capitol Hill that just didn't want to see Emmert coming down the hallway. Now let's move to August 3rd, when it felt like the stories just kept coming. The first story that broke, and I believe this was early afternoon, and it came through Sports Illustrated, Ross Dellinger, who writes on some of these regulatory issues for Sports Illustrated. An article came out titled, Tommy Tuberville is leading the latest congressional push for nil regulation. And there were breathless, breaking story headlines that were lighting up my phone and people were texting, what's going on here? Because until this article on August 3rd, really Tommy Tuberville and Joe Manchin weren't in the conversation in Congress. And the fact that they are in the conversation now. And it turns out that they have been talking for almost a year, and that's according to Tuberville. He did an interview with Paul Feinbaum later that same day, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that too. And so some of these facts start dribbling out, and it turns out that not only have Tuberville and Manchin been involved in these discussions behind the scenes, when Greg Sankey and George Klyavkov, the conference commissioner for the PAC-12, went to Congress back in May, these same sports writers pitched it as a meeting, a summit meeting with those two conference commissioners and Maria Cantwell, who is chair of the Commerce Committee, a Democrat from Washington, and Marsha Blackburn, also on the Commerce Committee, a Republican from Tennessee. And then there was a third participant who represented Olympic interests, a woman with the Olympic organization. I can't remember her name or what her exact title was. There was zero discussion about these other meetings that occurred. And apparently, Sankey and Klyavkov were making the tours, and they, in fact, spoke with both Tuberville and Manchin on their trip to Washington when George and Greg go to Washington. You know? <laughs> but uh, in this Dellinger article, on August 3rd, we get some interesting background facts that I don't think were on the table back in May. One is that Manchin is good friends with Nick Saban. And Nick Saban, of course, as we all know, is probably the most powerful football coach in all of college sports. And as I have discussed a couple of times in this podcast, he has been essentially a lobbyist for the most conservative values of the NCAA and the Power Five. And on May 21st, I did an episode on that. That's episode 119. So we see that the SEC connections are growing and growing. And then in this article, you get some sense of what 
Tuberville and Mansion want. And this is going to be, we believe, a name, image, and likeness bill. And they're pitching it as bipartisan because Tuberville is a Republican from Alabama. Mansion is a Democrat from uh, West Virginia, and a very, very powerful Democrat because of the current composition of Congress. And so they want some guardrails around nil, but Tuberville was really the spokesperson. We didn't hear much, if anything, from Manchin. So this was a Tuberville show, and he went on the tour, and he was speaking to all these media outlets, and then he appears on Feinbaum's show. He's trying to walk that fine line between, yeah, we want to get these athletes some name, image, and likeness compensation. We don't want to mess up with their money, but boy, we got a problem here. we got to protect our values, and we need some national uniform solution here that's going to apply across all 50 states. All this garbage that we were hearing in 2019 and 2020 and then into 2021 before Mark Emmert dumped all his nil garbage at the feet of the institutions because they didn't get what they wanted from Congress in 2020 and 2021. And I think what's interesting about this re-engagement is that when you look back at the justification for the NCAA going to Congress in the first place, it was that they believed, and they were talking about this behind the scenes, and this was an important part of the federal and state legislation working group's final report report in April of 2020 that nil benefits were impossible unless the NCAA and the Power Five by association got full antitrust immunity, absolute preemption of any state law that regulated in any way uh, on NCAA eligibility rules, and a federal declaration that athletes can't be employees. They said if they did not have those protections going forward, they emphasized preemption, but they included those other two things in all these bills and all their pleas to Congress. They said if we don't have these three things, then college sports is going to come to a fatal collapse because this nil market is going to kill us. And guess what? It hasn't. The nil market exists today without any of the things that the NCAA and the Power Five said in 2019 were absolutely essential as a precondition to the existence of that market. And guess what? The games go on. The games go on. And I guess I should also point out, and this is something I I just bookmarked. I haven't really figured a way to, to get it in, but I think this is the appropriate time. Back in late June of 2021, bumping up on this July 1st deadline when the state name, image, and likeness laws were going to go into effect in Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Texas, or a couple other states, the NCAA and the Power Five really pressed the gas in Congress. They wanted some kind of emergency relief before July 1st, and they really emphasized preemption. And so they brought a bunch of people in who really had different perspectives on the overall college sports marketplace, but they all agreed with one exception. They all agreed on one thing, and that's that we absolutely needed a national uniform standard for name, image, and likeness, which meant preemption. I believe that hearing was on June 9th of 2021. And then at or about that time, something else happened that got virtually no coverage. Kansas Republican Senator Jerry Moran, who's been very involved in these hearings in Congress on the regulation of college sports. In fact, he was the chair of the subcommittee that held the very first hearing in February, February 11th of 20. 20, and he has authored a bill that people are pointing to as middle of the road, but it is a train wreck. I'm going to talk about that in a standalone episode at some point. I've described it generally, but I really want to walk through that at some point. But Moran took to the floor of the Senate, the floor of the Senate, to make the case that this had to happen and it had to happen now. This was a national emergency. These state nil laws that were coming into effect on July 1st were going to bring college sports to a fatal collapse, and he was literally 
begging for the Senate to make this a priority issue before July 1st of 2021. And then we had a a student-friendly hearing that really took the wind out of that sails. And then four days after that, on June 21st, you had the unanimous Austin decision, which really was a body blow to the NCAA on multiple levels. But at that June 9th hearing, one of the witnesses in favor of preemption and a nationally uniform standard was a New Hampshire law professor, Franklin Pierce Law School professor, Michael McCann. And he writes prolifically for Sportico. I like a lot of what he does. And I actually liked a lot of what he had to say at that hearing, but landed with preemption. It was a little kind of jarring. He was talking about some shortcomings in the NCAA regulatory process and their relationship to the athletes. And he was talking about fairness and equity and all that. But on the most crucial issue for that purposes of that hearing, he landed with the NCAA and Power Five. We need a nationally uniform standard. Just maybe three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I was looking for the article here. I can't put my finger on it. But McCann did an article in Sportico where he basically said, look, I was wrong about that. This name, image, and likeness market, it exists. The sky hasn't fallen. College sports hasn't come to a fatal collapse. And the regulation, the the regulatory environment at the state level, at the voluntary level, at the institutional level, it's working itself out. This rush to use this really powerful federal constitutional privilege of preemption, which originates with Article 6 of the United States Constitution Supremacy Clause, that turned out to be unwarranted. It wasn't necessary. And what's important about that admission, I mean, it wasn't a, he, that wasn't the focus of his article. He made that, he dumped that in a paren, in a parenthetical. But I think it was pretty clear that when you look at what happened after July 1st and this null market that's been in existence for over a year now, not only has the sky not fallen, but all the potential harms to the individual in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and their personal pocketbooks hasn't come true either. So if the games go on, Without these federal protections and immunities as a precondition to the very existence of the name, image, and likeness market, what is the basis? On what basis does any in-system stakeholder beneficiary, whether it is the NCAA or the Power Five, have to go to Congress? What are they asking for? What are they offering in return? The answer is nothing. And they really weren't offering anything in return in their first tour through Congress because the guardrails they placed on name, image, and likeness would have made meaningful benefits almost impossible. So what's the quid pro quo here? Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz at that June 9th hearing essentially asked that. And the answer is that it's a one-way street. So the NCAA and Power Five get all these draconian protections and immunities that shut down the athletes' rights movement, and the athletes get nothing out of it except whatever name, image, and likeness benefits some federal commission or agency run by the NCAA decides to give them. That's what's happening in Congress. That's what's happened in Congress. And that sounds exactly like what Tuberville is talking about here. And again, I don't know how engaged Manchin is on this. If you're looking at other news items, (laughs) you understand that he's got some other important fish to fry. But, But this story, this Dellinger story, was really the beginning of the dominoes that fell on August 3rd. And in it is a reference to a letter. And it was supposedly sent to quote unquote stakeholders within college sports. But there was a link to the letter. And I want to just go through this letter. It's not very long. 
But boy, does it reveal so many of the misleading narratives and misconceptions. I mean, when you read this letter, you wonder if the people who wrote this thing understand what the hell's been going on for the last year. And it also speaks to the complete absence of true leadership in college sports. And that's a theme that has been coming up again and again and again. And you're hearing it from everybody, including people who are supposed to be in charge. You know, you hear Greg Sankey talking about the regulatory landscape. He is the co-chair of the freaking Transformation Committee, which is now the most important committee in all the college sports, because after this new constitution, Division I can do whatever the heck it wants to. And I'm going to talk about that in the context of infractions and enforcement. That was one of the primary selling points of this constitutional makeover and sending the infractions and enforcement down to the divisions. And this transformation committee was focused on infractions and enforcement, and nothing of value has come out of that initiative. They've been working for eight months, and then they really didn't even present the infractions piece. They're holding off on that till the end of August. They promised rules changes or recommendations, solid recommendations by August, and there were three, and they really haven't made good on any of them. So (laughs) this could just be a rearranging the furniture thing. But Greg Sankey, of all people in all of college sports right now, has it within his power to influence what's happening at the voluntary regulatory level. And importantly, because Division I now has independent infractions and enforcement authority, Greg Sankey and the members of that committee could make a recommendation tomorrow to the NCAA Division I Board of Directors and to the new Board of Governors that there needs to be an emergency infractions and enforcement committee or panel put together to address all of the issues that people like Tommy Tuberville are throwing at the public now about this out-of-control name, image, and likeness market and all these collectives and all this Nick Saban BS that we've been hearing for months. And instead of making that recommendation, we're getting these milquetoast finger-pointing memos from the Division I Board of Directors reminding them that we already have NCAA regulations through booster activity, and no pay for play and no inducements that have been on the books for decades that would, if enforced, get a handle on this nil market and the aspects of it that these stakeholders find so objectionable. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a second when I go through this letter. But it really begs the question of what in the world are they asking for here? And what is the justification That's the key question. What is your rationale, your justification, your purpose in going to Congress when you've just spent the last two and a half years saying that these federal protections and immunities were absolutely essential before the nil market existed? And that's been proven false. And the external regulator that is free markets is really expressing itself right now. And instead of letting those market forces shape this nil market and we can let it play out for a little bit, maybe get some data. Heaven forbid we get data to evaluate and the enterprise run through higher education. We just want the fear mongering. We want the Tommy Tubervilles and the Joe Manchins of the world and the Greg Sankeys of the world to scream that the skies is still falling. And gosh, the only way to put it back up there is to give us what we want now. And what they're saying is we don't want principles of American economic freedoms to disprove our false 
narratives. We just want to shut the damn thing down because this is bad news. And the longer this market is in place, the more it's going to expose the these arguments that they were making starting in 2019 as ridiculous. They're absurd on their face. And I think when we look back on this, assuming that Congress doesn't come in and shut down the market, is we're going to look at this the same way that we look back now on some of the skies falling narratives on the cost of attendance scholarship and the way that we look at the objections to a football playoff. You know, these, these same class of people, the conference commissioners and the athletics directors and some university presidents and then the NCAA bag men, they were saying, no, 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 we can't have a college football playoff. It'll be the end of college football. It'll kill us. So, I, and, and that's how I think we really are going to look at some of the, these absurd narratives. But let me just go to this letter. And it is on Senate letterhead, stated August 3rd. It is addressed to Greg Sankey, Commissioner, Southeastern Conference. And that's important. Greg Sankey, Southeastern Conference. And uh, this is the only letter that made the media. I mean, I think, as I understood Tuberville's interview with Feinbaum, they were sending it to stakeholders are just trying to get input. We don't know what this thing's going to look like, but we're just trying to get some input. And Joe and I just want to sit down and talk this stuff through. We don't want to do anything crazy here. We just want to make sure that everybody's protected and this market is being protected. And the values of college sports and higher education are being protected, all the same garbage. But sending this to Sankey, and I'm assuming he sent this same letter to the rest of the Power Five conference commissioners and to other stakeholders. Who knows? But this is the one that made the media, which is interesting as well. And how did Mr. Dellinger get a copy of this thing? He wrote that article. It was 1,300 words long. That thing came out and it was spit shined and polished. And he has access to you know, all this information. But the one that made it into the media, the one that was first presented to the public is addressed to Greg Sankey. And the way that this letter is written, it's as if the person reading it has no idea what's happened in the last year. Like Tuberville and Manchin are informing these stakeholders of what's happened, what the current state of the regulatory environment is and why there's an important and pressing need to get something done on name, image, and likeness. So when Greg Sankey provides his feedback, which this is just kabuki theater. They know exactly how Greg Sankey feels. I read this and I'm thinking, gosh, did Greg Sankey help draft this letter? But look, when he answers this letter and provides his comments on his priorities and legislative proposals and all this stuff by August 31st of 2022, is he doing that? In his capacity as what's best for the SEC as conference commissioner, is he doing that as what's best for all of college sports, which is his duty as a subcommittee member of a very important subcommittee of the NCAA Board of Governors, which is an association-wide board. He's supposed to be looking at legislative matters. He's looking at the same thing, both in his capacity as the SEC commissioner and also in his capacity as a representative of the NCAA Board of Governors. And that is a massive conflict of interest because when he's wearing his SEC hat, he has to acknowledge that the destabilization in the current marketplace right now is the direct product of Realignment 2.0, and the SEC is at ground zero of that realignment movement. And on the backside of that, a lot of people think that the SEC and the Big Ten are going to poach 
all the important products and the wreckage that's left behind is for the, the people who are in that wreckage to sort out. Not for Greg Sankey, not for Kevin Warren, so not for either of those conferences and not for the NCAA. So what do you want here? And what are you going to say, Mr. Sankey? And if you are looking at this through the interests of the association and you're interested in trying to preserve the association, then you may have a different view of what Congress ought to do rather than pursue your SEC interests, which is precisely what Tuberville's doing, what Nick Saban's doing, what Joe Manchin is doing by association, and what Greg Sankey's been doing since 2019. And he's also wearing a third hat. And that is as the co-chair of the Transformation Committee, which is a divisional body. And the divisional interests may not be the same as the SECs, may not be the same as the associations, may not be the same as the other two divisions. So Greg Sankey is operating at three different levels here. He is representing the entire association, all of college sports. He's also representing the Division One interest. He is the most important decision maker on the future of Division One right now. And he is also the conference commissioner of the, one of the two most powerful conferences in all of college sports, and the SEC is in a nuclear war with the Big Ten that will forever change college sports as we knew them. You can't do that. You cannot sit in those three chairs and wear those three hats. You cannot say that there is no conflict of interest there. And this isn't just the appearance of conflict. That, that is obviously the case. This is actual, real conflict of interest. And Greg Sankey can't represent all three of those interests at the same time. And it appears that the rest of college sports is content to sit back and let Greg Sankey and the SEC just run roughshod over the governance process. And in, in many ways, the regulatory model and the financial model. And who's in charge here, right? That, it comes back to that central question. Who the hell is in charge of the voluntary regulation of college sports? And right now, from the seat that I'm sitting in, it is the Southeastern Conference, which then begs the question that always comes up when the Southeastern Conference is running the show, and that is, what is ESPN's role? And I'll just note with a heaping helping of irony that this story broke in Sports Illustrated. You think ESPN didn't know what was going on here? When the main actors in this story are the SEC, Greg Sankey, a senator from Alabama, a, be a best buddy of Nick Saban, and Nick Saban himself. You think ESPN didn't know what was happening here? Of course they knew, but they held off. Why is not entirely clear? I have my own thoughts on that. And that'll be for another episode. But when they reported, or they actually didn't even report on this story, when they acknowledged this story, it wasn't through an independent piece by an ESPN writer. They pulled an Associated Press wire story that came out almost immediately after Dellinger published his SI article. And it was without attribution. They were just putting it up there on their website like, this happened today. And we're just going to acknowledge that it happened. No analysis. It was just reportage. No editorial judgment, apparently. But it was pretty down the middle. And it was just vanilla. Okay, we covered it. Check. On to the next story. Are you serious? Are you serious? ESPN got scooped on a breaking news, stop the presses story that had the SEC and Greg Sankey and Nick Saban's fingerprints all 
over it. And if you think I'm going tinfoil hat, I'll just also let you know that when Tuberville was sitting for that interview later in the day with Paul Feinbaum, Feinbaum asked a question. He's an SEC guy. His show is built around SEC interests, and that's an ESPN product. So he's not exactly a disinterested observer here. But he was the primary vehicle through ESPN on this story that Sports Illustrated broke. And he asked... Tuberville, he said, look, what do you say to people who look at this? And they look at Manchin's connection to Saban and Tuberville's connection to Alabama football. What do you say when people say, look, this is really Nick Saban's campaign and Nick Saban's fingerprints are all over it? That was the quote from Feinbaum. And Tuberville kind of, he brushed it off. He didn't really provide a good answer. He said, well, I know Coach Saban really well. We want to have his input. We trust his opinion. We value his opinion, all that stuff. But I think what Feinbaum was getting to was a, a deeper question of who's calling the shots here? Who's influencing the policy? What kind of information is making it to the United States Senate? There's no mention of even the existence of the lobbying effort. Lack of coverage on some of the most obvious questions in this whole story really shines a light on how compliant and complicit the quote-unquote sports media is. On stories like this, they just swallow their curiosity. And when I say a compliant sports media, this is what I'm talking about. But if you understand the interests of the people involved in this breaking news story, this just doesn't look good. So let me just go through this letter real quick. I think I'm just going to point out all the areas where it is just wrong or incomplete. And it says, more than a year's passed since the U.S. Supreme Court decided Austin and the NCAA revised its guidelines to allow athletes to receive compensation for the use of their nil. It's difficult to overstate the changes to college sport that we have since witnessed. This is the sky as falling prelude. And we're special. We got to get on this now. This is really important. Uh, forget all this other stuff. It goes on. Today, student athletes, college and university administrators, athletics directors, and athletic conferences face uncertainty in a rapidly evolving nil landscape. The Army Arms race of nil implementation has already far exceeded the original Alston intent of ensuring that players are equitably compensated for the use of their name, image, and likeness. That's nonsensical. That loaded language. The arms race. Well, one man's arms race is another man's free markets. And if you're sitting in the seat that Tommy Tuberville is in and the seats that he was in as a coach in the SEC, this is a threat to your status quo which could then mean a threat to your power, your control, and your pocketbook. So instead of expressing this in terms of the operation of free market principles that haven't worked themselves out, this is an arms race of nil implementation. And it says that, has, that it has already far exceeded the original post-Austin intent of ensuring that players are equitably compensated for the use of their name, image, and likeness. What post-Austin intent. There's no, there was no thought that went into the dump that Mark Emmert pulled off on June 30th of 2021, seven hours and 40 minutes before July 1st, when all these state name, image, and likeness laws were going into effect. That was, there was no intent there. It was just a dump and there was no direction. There was no leadership. So what happened? The institutions had to fill that regulatory vacuum and that cowardly dump. And then principles of free markets entered into the name, image, and likeness arena. And some good stuff started happening for athletes. That's what happened. That's your arms race. 
Senator Tuberville. A lack of clear enforceable rules is creating an environment that potentially allows for the exploitation of student-athletes by unregulated entities, prioritizes short-term financial gain over careful investment in one's career and the lifelong value of education, and diminishes the role of coaches, mentors, and athletic staff while empowering wealthy boosters. And presenting this as if there's no way to stop it, as if the people who are in control right now are powerless to do anything about it. It's just chaos and an arms race. And we're accelerating down a path that leads away from traditional values. I mean, this is really embarrassing almost that Tuberville would try to pull this off when uh, the very people who are supposed to be in charge of those values that he identified are the ones that are throwing them under the bus in real time and hiring conference commissioners who come from the entertainment industry rather than hire education. He goes on. And again, the mansion's name is on this. This obviously came from Tuberville and the SEC folks. The lack of uh, meaningful leadership and a lack of clarity in this area resulting from Austin means that the U.S. Congress must act to set clear ground rules for student athletes and institutions alike. Like you, we have the common goal of protecting student athletes, ensuring fair competition and compensation, and preserving the time-honored traditions of college sports. Read amateurism, the collegiate model, and the student athlete. And I mean, we're just back to 1950. That's where we are. And then he says, our staffs are actively drafting legislative text to establish an Austin-compliant nil regulatory structure that promotes the principles stated above, and we request the input and perspective of informed stakeholders like you. Please submit your organization's comments, priorities, or legislative proposals in writing to blah, blah. So that last paragraph is really interesting. He says they are actively drafting legislative text. In his interview with Feinbaum, he says, we're just at the information gathering stage. And that's really the purpose of this letter, ostensibly, to gather information. How can you be in the drafting process of this legislative text if you don't know what the hell the bill's going to look like? You don't know what the purpose of the bill is. But this notion, we need something that is Austin compliant in the nil regulatory structure. What the hell does that mean? Austin wasn't a name, image, and likeness case. And all it said was that if the NCAA insisted on enforcing its compensation limits, and if those compensation limits are anti-competitive, they simply have to justify their behavior under the full rule of reason analysis. That's all that Austin said. And apparently Tuberville doesn't know what the NCAA is saying to the Third Circuit in the Johnson case, because in that case, in their briefing, they have said unequivocally that either Austin doesn't apply because it was in the education benefits context, not the FLSA employee context, or if it does apply, that the actual holding in Austin and the ruling in that case from a unanimous Supreme Court actually enhanced the NCAA's regulatory authority under the principle of amateurism. They said that explicitly. So how can you say that to a federal court and then put out through your minions in, in Congress or in the media that you can't do a damn thing because of Austin and you're just paralyzed by indecision. That is just a smokescreen and a way to justify, and this brings me back to something I said earlier on, it's a way to justify your re-engagement with Congress because your original purpose is gone. It proved to be a false narrative. You need something new. And the new thing is, well, this Austin decision, we're just paralyzed here. We just can't do anything. And these lawsuits and they just keep coming and coming and coming. No. If you believe, as you have said to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, that Austin enhances your regulatory authority, then you do precisely what the divisional leaders 
are authorized to do after this constitutional makeover. You at, tell Greg Sankey, this letter should, to Greg Sankey should say, get off your ass and we're sending this letter to you in your capacity as the co-chair of the Transformation Committee. And in that capacity, we need you to enforce your own frickin' rules. And we are telling you that if you don't do that, if you refuse to self-regulate, we're not doing a thing for you. You can't come running to us asking us to bail you out because you refuse to keep your own house in order. And you now have the authority to do that. You don't need to go through all the NCAA BS and the membership BS. Division One now has the authority to set up its own infractions and enforcement body to address these very issues. And your failure to do that is your problem. It's not the athlete's problem. It's not the fans' problem. It's not the United States Senate's problem. And I think it's also important to point out here that in all of Tuberville's propaganda about the lack of regulation and everything's crazy and we're in an arms race, he conveniently omits the fact that the state of Alabama, within a matter of months after passing its own name, image, and likeness law, state law, which was very restrictive, among the most restrictive in the country, the state of Alabama repealed that law outright. They took it off the books because after the NCAA's nil dump on July 1st and this quote-unquote interim policy, which was far more permissive than any of these state laws, the state of Alabama and the University of Alabama and Auburn University believed that they were at a competitive disadvantage in the talent acquisition market, recruiting because schools in states outside of Alabama that did not have a name, image, and likeness law actually had a better recruiting environment than states that did have nil laws. And all of those quote-unquote guardrails that were in the Alabama law to essentially prevent the athletes from engaging in any meaningful nil activity were defended and justified on the grounds that they were values-based and were preserving the integrity of the recruiting process, the integrity of the collegiate model, and the student-athlete and amateurism and all this happy malarkey. And the second that the state of Alabama saw that it was at a competitive disadvantage in standing behind those principles, they flushed them down the memory hole in a nanosecond. So Senator Tuberville isn't saying, look, we can take care of this issue at home. We're going to reinstate our original nil law. We're going to live by the integrity-based limitations of that law. And we are going to be the shining example of the values of college sports and the values of higher education. So this is just further proof that the most powerful value that drives the thinking and the short-term decision-making in the Power 5 business model, the Power 5 football business model, is their insatiable quest to gain a competitive advantage in the marketplace and to avoid losing a competitive advantage in the marketplace. That's what this is all about. And this carefully calibrated status quo that existed before the summer of 2021 is exactly the status quo that the SEC wanted, that the big-time football products in the SEC wanted, and they do not want to live in a world where they do not have that built-in, carefully calibrated competitive advantage. And there have just been so many head-spinning ironies in this roller coaster ride we've been on for the last couple of years. But one of the juiciest ironies to me is that you have someone like Tommy Tuberville from the state of Alabama who ran on states' rights, free markets, and limited government 
making the public case for a federal bailout of college football. You truly can't make this stuff up. So let's move away from the Tuberville issue and on to the next event in the timeline, August 3rd. And that is when we get another story from, guess who? Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated. Here's the title of that article. Five senators to reintroduce sweeping college athlete bill of rights in Congress. And he talks about the reintroduction of the Athletes' Bill of Rights, and that's the Booker-Blumenthal bill. And it initially had a revenue-sharing component. It's a broad-based bill. It's not a name, image, and likeness-only bill. And that's one of the tensions that's existed really since July of 2020 during those hearings in judiciary when Blumenthal and Booker said, wait a minute, we have some other concerns here that relate to revenue-sharing and athlete safety and who's going to have a seat at the table and all these important issues. And Lindsey Graham, the chair of that committee at the time, a Republican from South Carolina said, oh, get me something, get me something. And then later on, I believe it was either December of 2020 or maybe it was early January 2021, they came out with the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And I've talked a bit about that bill. But then in May of this year, of 2022, at a Drake Group symposium, Cory Booker said that they were going to pull the revenue sharing component of that bill and then insert a gender equity component. And in episode 120, I talked about that. And that was really what I saw as Booker bidding against himself because there was no reason to do that. And I talked about the influence of the skies falling gender equity arguments, the zero sum equity market that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have invented out of whole cloth, that if we provide some equity to the athlete to actually provide the labor that underwrites this entire industry, we're somehow stealing equity from women and non- revenue athletes. And it's just a ridiculous principle on its face and it's offensive and it's divisive, but that it's been very successful because when you start talking gender equity, these decision makers, particularly politicians, they just do the synchronized desk dive. And one of the things that's interesting about this reintroduction last week is to the extent that Booker took out this revenue sharing component to try to ameliorate the gender equity concerns and then put in a gender equity component of the bill that really has very little meaning because it just duplicates Title IX, you would assume that there would have been some female sponsorship, but there's not. On the original bill that came out in, I think it was December 2020, Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York, Democrat, she was a co-sponsor of that bill. She's no longer on the bill. In fact, there's not a single woman on the reintroduction of this bill. I don't know what that means, if anything. But all these female voices that have been so prominent, where's Maria Cantwell? Where's Marsha Blackburn? We're hearing from Tuberville and Manchin. And that, I think, is a way for the NCAA and the Power Five to try to put a new face on this and to try to flush down the memory hole their failed attempt in Congress between 2019 and 2021. So they're trying as best they can to make this appear as if it's a new initiative, and it is not. And again, uh, the perfect proof of that is that the NCAA and Power Five have been using the same lobbyists throughout the entire period, up to this quarter, up to this month. In the most recent Senate lobbying disclosure forms. So, but this Booker bill is interesting because I think it says a lot about where kind of average decision makers are, where I think average Americans are at the values level in terms of athletes' rights. And there's this wall that exists right now, post nil, to anything that further alters the relationship between the athletes and the institutions. And when I say athletes, I mean the revenue producing athletes and the institutional beneficiaries of that labor. So they don't want to talk about revenue sharing. 
They don't want to talk about employee status. They don't want to talk about unionization. Right now, we're stuck in the nil mud. And while we're stuck there, people like Tuberville and Manchin and Sankey and Sabin and all these people who are the face of this new nil movement, they want to get nil locked down. And they want to get absolute control over that marketplace through federal preemption. So I just want to note that Dellinger got the scoop on this one too, interestingly. And on that point, with these two stories coming out, I want to make an observation. I don't know when Dellinger knew that these two things were going to happen on the same day and how he had his stories prepped and ready to go. But I think it's significant that this Tuberville Mansion story breaks before the Booker Blumenthal story because it's just the nature of the news cycle that a breaking news story, a bombshell news story, that's how it was presented, that comes first is going to dominate the rest of the news cycle. And that is what happened with these two legislative issues that are very important in college sports, potentially. And so the Booker Blumenthal bill just didn't get a lot of discussion. And whatever the motivation was in the timing of these stories, it certainly played out in a way that is beneficial to the Power Five football interests and to the SEC's interests. But we're not done yet, and I'm going to try to get through these quickly. There were two other news items that came out towards the end of the day on August 3rd, and they came from the NCAA website. And remember, this is about 24, actually less than 24 hours after they have announced the new board of governors and that Linda Livingstone is the chair and that we have this Division II volleyball player as the sole athlete representative, a voting member. At 4.56, August 3rd, we get this. It's a press release titled, D1 Board of Directors Adopts Student Athlete Benefit Package. And then a small subheadline says, transfer package will be revisited later this month. And I should have said this earlier. In his comments to Feinbaum, Tuberville was really on the transfer issue. So they're saying, we need federal re regulation in the nil market. We also need it in transfers. We need national federal legislation to govern these transfer issues because this portal's out of control and it's killing us and all that stuff. Again, not giving the market time to work itself out. And there was a glut of inventory and laborers in that market because of COVID and the extra years that, that some athletes got. And that still hasn't worked itself out. So we really don't know what these markets are going to look like. But Tuberville wants to shut them both down or at least have a, a, the federalization of the regulation over those two issues. But this press release says the Division I Board of Directors adopted the first group of Transformation Committee recommendations aimed at allowing schools to provide more benefits to student-athletes. Uh, and I, I guess I should say, I'm going to do episodes on this Transformation Committee's work. It is really interesting. And again, very little has come out of this. But the way that they've gotten to the issues that they are pushing out of the Transformation Committee, then to, to the Division I Council, and then up to the Division I Board of Directors is really interesting to me. So I'm not going to go through all this. I just want to note that they tabled the transfer component. There were three basic things they have been talking about and two have taken priority. One is infractions and enforcement. The second is transfers. And that has really been the focus of that committee's work up until now. And their discussion about improving or enhancing benefits for athletes has just been this running bullet point that said, we are still considering and we're still getting feedback and we're going to see what we can do. And there was one where they said, yeah, you know, we're going to let our outside counsel advise us on what we can and can't do and all this stuff. But there was nothing specific. Then they come out with this thing at the end of the day 
on August 3rd, and they emphasize these athlete benefit things. And the way that they describe them, it sounds like they are simply permitting things that have been going on for a while, that athletes have been able to get for a while, without having to ask for a waiver through the NCAA waiver process. And the characterization of these benefits is really vague. It's not clear exactly what some of this stuff is and what it means and the extent to which to which it's anything new. But this is what they focus on. And then they dump this transfer issue and they say, we're going to table that because of pushback by the Student Athlete Advisory Committee, SAC. And apparently SAC believes that the transfer rules proposed by the Transformation Committee are too restrictive. And I, I'm going to talk about that separately because that's a really interesting issue. So we had these three things. We had infractions and enforcement, transfer, and then this nebulous athlete benefits. And the only thing that came out on August 3rd is these vague athlete benefits, which may not be anything new in the first place. The transfer issue got tabled. So the Transformation Committee and the Division I Board of Directors said, oh, we're going to listen to what SAC had to say. We're going to table the transfer recommendations until we have further discussion and all that stuff. And for reasons that really weren't clear at all, they tabled the infractions and enforcement recommendations to the end of August. So they've done virtually nothing. And that gets dumped at the end of a day where there have been some really powerful <laughs> news stories that drop. And then four minutes later at five o'clock p.m., on August 3rd, we get this from the NCAA propaganda website. Statement on Division I Board of Directors action from D1 Transformation Committee co-chairs. And there's a subheading. Board approved benefits delayed vote on transfers. So this is the statement from Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer, the co-chairs of the Transformation Committee. And it is just a bunch of BS to make it look like they're on it and they need to look at some of these issues further. And they're really listening to these student athletes. But there's no acknowledgement of what happened earlier in the day. And a letter that you received from Congress asking for your input on issues that go directly to the work of the Transformation Committee. I, I mean, what's going on? And I think it's this kind of misdirection that is invisible to, to most people who are looking at college sports. And all of these events are connected. What happened on August 2nd, with the formation of these committees under the new Board of Governors. And this legislative committee is directly tied to what happened on August 3rd. And the SEC's role, Greg Sankey's role, the future of congressional engagement, and a reformulation, perhaps, of the Power Five's militant opposition to the Athletes' Bill of Rights. So all that's connected. And then you have this dump at the end of the day on August 3rd that, oh, by the way, we're going to hold off on this transfer thing. And when I get into that, it just doesn't smell right to me. It doesn't feel right to me. Why all of a sudden are we getting a full break on that issue? When they've been talking about it for eight months and they've gotten student input, how does that happen? And they supposedly have a quote-unquote student on the transformation committee, although he's so old now that he wouldn't meet the eligibility criteria for a seat on the governing boards under the new constitution. Again, just speaks to the NCAAs and the Power Five's lack of respect for the athlete voice. So we'll keep an eye on these things. And again, there's no telling what the hell is going on 
in Congress, and we're not going to get any reliable information. Everything that comes out is self-interested. But we know now, we know for sure that there's been more activity going on behind the scenes than we were aware of before. And there have been substantial discussions to try to get to some kind of an agreement. And they're pointing to the midterms, but I think in part, their affiliation with Manchin, aside from him being able to buddy up with Saban, is that he provides the Republicans some insurance. If he sticks with this, and that remains to be seen, he gives Republicans an insurance policy if the Democrats retain control of the Senate after the midterms. And Manchin can be an arm twister to get enough Democrats to go along with this, that they can have a essentially an NCAA-friendly bill that Biden will sign. And I think that's the way they're thinking. They Look, they're working the chessboard. They're playing three-dimensional chess with some of the most sophisticated lobbyist lawyers and public relations people in the business. And they've been doing that. The NCAA has been doing that since 2014. The NCAA and the Power Five together have been doing that since 2020. So they're not going away. And when I have my friends in the athletes' rights movement kind of rolling their eyes, a Feinbaum made a comment like that. When you hear pleas for congressional intervention from the NCAA or the Power Five, people roll their eyes. But they're not going away. And there's a reason that their lobbyists are still on the payroll. And there's a reason that their high-priced lawyers are doing the dirty work behind the scenes. And there's a reason that their public relations spin doctors are trying to find a way to justify a re-engagement with Congress when all the initial justifications for that in 2020 have proved proven to be outright lies. All right. So with that, I'm going to just close this thing out. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Take care.